Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the October edition of MediVet Roundtable. Uh, I'm really excited for our conversation this evening because we will be focusing on our immunotherapy cancer treatment. And who, who better to have on than uh, our special guest this evening than uh, Dr. John Yanelli from the University of Kentucky. Dr. Yanelli developed our autologous prescription product uh, and remains at the forefront of oncology research. So thanks for coming on with us, Dr. Yanelli. Uh, sounds good. Thank you for inviting yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. We also have Dr. Snyder on with us, uh, as always. He's our resident stem cell guru. So thanks for coming on again, uh, Dr. <laughs> Snyder. Absolutely. Looking forward to this. Very yeah, yeah. So let's just, uh, let's just jump right in. Uh, Dr. Yanelli, could you just give us, uh, give our audience some background on yourself and uh, your work in cancer research uh, as it relates to Medibet Biologics and immunotherapy? Um, sure, I can do that. Um, it's been a long road. I think um, I started my studies at Virginia Commonwealth University and got a PhD in human anatomy uh, from the Medical College of Virginia. And um, I studied the inflammatory response uh, as a graduate student. Um, I then went on to a postdoc at the University of Virginia with Dr. Vic Engelhard, who is a uh, prominent T cell biologist uh, in the field. And I spent three years with Vic and um, I studied uh, a couple of things. But the main thing we looked at at the time was I was looking at the structure of the uh, major histocompatibility complex class one proteins and how they were involved in the recognition uh, by T cells of tumor cells and viral infected cells. But interestingly, um, what got me a, a fair amount of notoriety as a postdoc was with my background in anatomy uh, Vic asked me to look at the interaction of satellitic T cells and viral infected or tumor cells. And this was 1985. I, I got my PhD in 83. Uh, he knew I was really interested in microscopy. And I decided uh, with a colleague named Jim Sullivan, we studied for about six months in very intricate detail what happens when a lymphocyte comes in contact with a viral infected cell or a tumor cell. We were using a tumor cell as a model. And um, I began the studies, I'm really dating myself here, but this was 1985. Um, I drew everything in a notebook, all the interactions I saw between T cell clones and tumor cells I made drawings because we didn't have um, a system set up at the time to photograph it. Well, I had a whole series of drawings and, and Vic had given me a call in uh, one evening and said I had to present at lab meeting the next day. And I said, I don't have anything. And he said, well, figure out, look at your pictures. And I looked at the pictures and something that all my drawings, something very interesting came out of it when I finally looked at it. And it turns out we were the first to describe granule reorientation in T cells. So as the cytolytic T cell binds to a viral infected cell or a tumor cell, we now know that the T cell goes from a 
what's called a hand mirror shaped cell and it reorients the granule to the, to the area uh, binding to the tumor cell or the viral infected cell. And there was a very exciting finding. And we finally began to photograph it and film it. We published it in 1986. Uh, we called it the reorientation of cytolytic granules. And it holds obviously to this day. If you look in some old textbooks and it's still referenced, been in Scientific American, all those sorts of things. So really, that's what I was hanging my hat on at the time. It was a very exciting discovery. You were the first to well, photograph that interaction, correct? Yeah, we were the first to uh, make movies. We filmed it, uh, took photographs. It's published, as I said, in the Journal of Immunology in 1986. And it, it really stands today as uh, the first visual observation of how cytolytic T cells kill tumor cells. We actually, using rather sophisticated um, optics, my colleague, Jim Sullivan, uh, used in the Marsky optics at the time, we actually followed granules as they reoriented and actually fused with the membrane of the CTL, releasing their granular contents. And then what obviously happens is within those granules are perforins and granzymes. The perforins form pores, and the granzymes go through the pores and kill and digest the viral infected or the tumor cell. So the observation remains today as a, as, as a key finding, and um, it, it, was, it was a very exciting time of my life. I, I got to do a lot of traveling and, and presenting the movies, and the, we made movies of it and photographs and so forth. Um, but after three years of my postdoc, uh, it was time to find a job, and I went out. I, I had a number of really good job offers from Northwestern and Duke, and it turned out that a little company in Franklin, Tennessee, had an ad in Science Magazine, and the company was called Biotherapeutics, and Biotherapeutics would change my life um, because I, was, I had a position already as an assistant professor at Northwestern or at Duke. It was my choice. And I, I went on this interview because I'd never been to Nashville. I, I play guitar and I wanted to go to Nashville. So I went down to Nashville, Tennessee. And the founder of the company, his name's Bob Oldham. And Bob is the founder of the, of the biologics group at the National Cancer Institute. And Bob basically said to me, uh, you know, he said, you can, you can continue working in mice or you can cure people with what you know. And so he convinced me and I, I decided to turn down my academic positions, my offers, and I went to biotherapeutics as a staff scientist. And during five years of biotherapeutics, I rose from staff scientist to section head to finally division director. Um, but what was most exciting while I was there is Bob taught me a, an extremely important lesson, which has stuck with me my entire career. He told me cancer doesn't take a holiday. I remember it was a Saturday afternoon and I was on my way home from the lab. I was gonna do something, play golf or whatever. And he had a patient he needed to treat on Monday morning. And, and he, he pulled me over on the side of the road and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going home, we'll play golf. And he said, well, I have a patient coming in Monday. He said, don't you understand cancer doesn't take a holiday? And so he really taught me an important lesson uh, 
uh, he taught me how to do immunotherapy, cellular immunotherapy. In biotherapeutics, we were the first company in the world to make, to manufacture, and deliver immunotherapy. We did it at the exact same time Steve Rosenberg was delivering the same therapies at the National Cancer Institute. The difference between us in Franklin, Tennessee, and Steve Rosenberg at the National Cancer Institute was we were a private company and we had to charge patients for experimental therapies. So I spent from 1985 to 1990 at Biotherapeutics in Tennessee and treated probably 500 cancer patients with, at the time, the first cellular therapy that was developed, and that was called lac cell therapy, lymphokine-activated killer cells. We then developed what was also being developed at the National Cancer Institute, which were tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes. I developed that protocol, and I did a lot of the development of what is currently today being done. It's called the closed system of cell culture. We utilized leukapheresis machines, the Fenwall CS3000, and gas permeable bags. We did all our culture in bags. And when you talk about cell culture, most people talk about a well of a six well plate. We were, my staff and I, we were growing cells on an average of 150 liters of culture medium, over 100 culture vessels, and these were plastic gas permeable bags, and we developed with a, a fellow at, um, at Fenwall, his name is Herb Cullis, Herb and I developed all the procedures for culturing the cells in gas permeable bags and harvesting all this cell culture medium and so forth in the Fenwall CS3000. So there was very exciting times. We were treating cancer patients. We were developing first therapies around natural killer cells, and then uh, antigen-specific T cells. Well, as things would happen, we were the first company doing this in the world. Biotherapeutics had established over 30 satellite laboratories across the country, but the field was not ready for a company making immunotherapy reagents. So they ran into issues. And I decided in 1990 to look for an, another job. I, was, I had some opportunities to continue there, but I got a call from an interesting guy on a Saturday afternoon. I picked up the phone and the guy said, hi, John, this is Steve Rosenberg. And Steve called me from the National Cancer Institute and he said, why don't you come up here, give a seminar? And the rest is really history. I went up there. I gave a talk that Tuesday afternoon. I spent the day with Steve, and Steve offered me a position at the, in the surgery branch of the National Cancer Institute. I spent the first year in the immunotherapy group doing research, and because I didn't want to run the immunotherapy lab at the time, because I'd done it for five years. I wanted to get back to the bench. After a year, Steve said to me, I need you to run the clinical lab. So I took over the cellular immunotherapy lab at the National Cancer Institute, and I really spent the five best years of my career uh, with Steve Rosenberg in the surgery branch, making T-cells, um, 
doing gene therapy, we were the first to develop gene therapy um, T cells that had the TNF or the interleukin-2 gene. Uh, we made the first um, gene-modified tumor vaccine. I remember doing that in my lab, four o'clock in the morning, harvesting it so Steve could inject it at seven o'clock so that he could have press conferences. So it was, it was an exciting time of my career. But around, after treating hundreds of patients with T cells and, and all sorts of different vaccine products, being involved in the early days of tumor antigen identification, I was part of the group that identified uh, the MART1 gene product, GP100. Um, I decided I needed to move out and develop my own lab. And so I had a number of offers. I ended up coming to the University of Kentucky. I arrived at Kentucky in 1995, and they really weren't ready for someone like me. Uh, I remember during the interview, uh, one of the chairmen, the chairman of microbiology, said to me, I would never treat a patient at Kentucky with immunotherapy. Uh, he bet me a, a steak dinner. And in 2001, it uh, took me a few years because we had to go through the FDA and so forth and so on. A colleague and I, uh, his name is Ed Herskowitz, he's a pulmonologist. We treated our first patient with a dendritic cell vaccine. We got two INDs for it. We ended up treating 60 patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, while I was, I'm still at Kentucky, I'm not doing the vaccine anymore. Um, but we were successful at developing immunotherapy in a, in a, um, a cancer center that was only delivering chemotherapy and radiation therapy. We were, we were far ahead of our time in terms of, of academic science. Um, I did everything in a, in a, I didn't have a GMP facility. I did everything under GLP conditions. Um, and we were very successful, uh, published all our work. Uh, it turns out that we were with our dendritic cell vaccine, we were inducing an immune response in 70% of the patients we were immunized. Um, and it turned out that when we did a retrospective analysis of our data in 2011, a, a significant number of the patients were still alive. And, and what was amazing was after five or six years, patients treated with stage three, stage four non-small cell lung cancer were surviving after this particular vaccine we gave them. So they were exciting times at Kentucky, but we were really far ahead of ourselves in terms of an academic center because immunotherapy at the time was principally being done at the National Cancer Institute. It was being done at large academic centers. University of Kentucky, uh, in, in my opinion at the time, we were the only two people doing these sorts of therapies. So things continued. We published all our data. We got NIH grants, so forth and so on. And in 2014, um, a colleague of mine in, uh, I moved to the microbiology immunology department, a colleague um, named Don Cohen, uh, who also is involved with uh, MetaVet Biologics. Uh, Don and I had a meeting and we talked about developing a cancer vaccine for dogs. And so basically what we did is we looked at we had treated 60 patients with our human dendritic cell vaccine, and we developed a 
protocol where we could immunize dogs with autologous tumor um, that we treated in the laboratory, made it more immunogenic, and we developed the protocol. And since 2014, 2015, um, we've developed the, the protocol and the, the standard operating procedure um, for treating animals. So I basically took all the experience from about treating about a thousand patients with immunotherapy, um, human patients, and took that and applied it to uh, to the canine field. Dogs are are really important to me. I've had dogs my entire life. I currently have two. Um, we just lost one about six weeks ago, and we just picked up another rescue. Um, Dogs are very important. I, I, I love the animal. I love cats as well, but dogs have been prominent in our, in our lives and the lives of our children. They all have dogs. And so I, you know, I decided that what's very interesting about immunotherapy research is I've been doing immunotherapy since 1984, 85. Uh, we developed everything in humans. We first did the studies in mice, and we developed different therapies in mice. We moved them to humans rather quickly, but it seemed to me there was a void in terms of companion animals. And when I looked at the literature, there wasn't much going on in terms of immunotherapy for dogs. So when I got together with Don Cohen, he's a, he's a microbiologist in our department. Uh, he's a cancer biologist as well. Uh, we decided to develop a vaccine therapy that was actually based on a human, human therapy, which I had done for years. And we developed the protocol and we um, were in touch with Medivet Biologics and Medivet was interested in the idea and we further developed it over the next couple of years, uh, began, you know, preparing tumor vaccine for dogs. And um, currently, Medivet is delivering uh, the um, vaccine. Um, it, it's, it's been a very exciting time to, to move from humans to dogs. I still, I teach at the University of Kentucky. I'm involved in um, overseeing some of the human work that's being done there. But I'm actively involved in trying to make this cancer vaccine uh, better. The, the interesting thing about moving from humans to dogs is um, you really need to make things as simple as you can. You need to make something that is deliverable to an animal uh, by a general practitioner. I, I, I think that's important. So all of the science that went into developing this particular product, this um, autologous prescription product, is all based on human work. Uh, it's based on whatever 25 or so years of, of human experience. Um, we basically treat the canine tumor cells so that they become immunogenic. Um, we induce the uh, process of, of apoptosis in the tumor cells, and we add an adjuvant. And the adjuvant helps to stimulate um, the immune system. So the whole basis of the product that Medivet is delivering is all based on human work. It is very, very similar to the vaccine that we delivered to patients with non-swastle lung cancer. 
for about 10 to 11 years that we had two INDs for. So it's all based on good science, good laboratory science, good clinical studies. It's all published in good <laughs> medical journals. Um, so it's all there, it's, it's all referenced, but we simply decided to do something that we could deliver for dogs. Again, because dogs are very, uh, very important to me. Um, and I also find the canine model as being interesting because clearly the lifespan is different than humans. When we treat humans, um, you know, we're hopefully looking at another 10, 20 years if a patient gets cancer when in their later years, when you're 60, 65. Uh, with dogs, you know, they're, they're developing disease around 10 years old. We obviously want to give them a good life for as long as possible. We want to extend that life. So when you look at the different breeds of dogs, you're looking at a much narrower window, but you're also looking at doing something as quickly as you can to improve their life and also to improve the life of the owner. The owner is really important um, in this little triangle. Um, Doctor, you so know, while I'm, yes. Hey, if you don't mind, if you could uh, get into in a little bit more detail how the immunotherapy vaccine works from uh, resection of the tumor sample to, uh, to re-injection uh, in the procedure. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the vaccine product that uh, Dr. Cohen and I developed, uh, it's an autologous product. So it relies on us, <clears throat> excuse me, us receiving the fresh tumor sample, the autologous sample, um, they're generally delivered to us overnight um, by courier service. And um, we take the solid tumor and we make a single cell suspension out of it. We, um, we dissect it. We try to remove as much normal tissue as we can. We isolate the, the tumor material and uh, we do an enzymatic process, and the next day we get a single cell suspension. Um, the uh, laboratory staff is, um, has been trained to be able to differentiate uh, microscopically the tumor population versus the, um, any contaminating blood cells. And um, basically that product is treated to induce the process of apoptosis, because we know that the apoptotic body can stimulate an immune response. We have developed a, um, an adjuvant. In my human studies, I use the cytokine called GMCSF um, with limited success. I mean, we were getting an immune response about 70% of our patients. But as time proceeded from the 2000, the early 2000s to 2014, 15, we realized we needed a more sophisticated adjuvant. So what we developed was a product called CPG. Um, and what it does is it serves as what we call a danger signal. It alerts the immune system that what we are injecting into the animal is a foreign product and it will turn on the animal's immune system to take up and process and present the tumor cells in what are called dendritic cells in the, in, the, in the dog. And those dendritic cells process and present 
tumor-derived antigens on their surface, and following an, an emigration to draining lymph nodes will present those tumor antigens to T-cell precursors, which have been derived and educated in the thymus to recognize foreign antigens in context with self-MAC products. So we make the vaccine, uh, the, the laboratory staff, it takes about a day to process and, and clean up the vaccine product. We then uh, mix it with the adjuvant, the CPG adjuvant, and we do a series of sterility tests to make sure that the product is sterile. Um, we look for bacteria. Um, we look for different microscopic reagents to make sure it's not contaminated. And the product is then prepared for injection and sent back to the, uh, to the veterinarian who sent us the original tumor sample. When the tumor is, is injected, we ask it to be injected as, as best as possible intradermally. We believe we get a good immune response if the antigen is delivered intradermally. It's also, you get both intradermal and subcutaneous delivery of the antigens. And then we follow the animal. And um, what we are envisioning happening is exactly what we've seen in laboratory mice and hamsters, in humans and other dogs. It's the antigen that we deliver is picked up, processed, and presented by dendritic cells, which undergo a process called maturation. And they become very good at presenting tumor antigens to T cell precursors which have receptors that can bind to the dendritic cells to the specific peptide, either a small peptide, eight or nine amino acids, which stimulates cytolytic T cells, or larger peptides, about 18 to 23 amino acids long, which stimulate helper T cells. In our laboratory analysis, we've observed that when we immunize dogs with the particular vaccine, we have observed that we can generate an antibody response. We get IgG antibodies that are specific for the tumor. And those antibodies, we know, we know what they do. They can do a number of things. They can either fix complements and kill the tumor cells. Uh, they can mediate a process called antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity to kill the tumor cells. Um, they can also serve some other functions as well in terms of preventing metastasis. So we know we get an antibody response. We've published that data. We also know in order to get the antibody response, we have to get a T-cell response because you can't make the antibodies without CD4-specific T-cells. We've done cytokine analysis. We know that we're getting CD4 T-cells. And we've also shown that we can get, in some instances, cytolytic T cells. So we feel very good that we can stimulate the immune response of these animals. And after we send the vaccine, um, it's all ready to deliver in a series of injections. The animal in most cases gets a prime, followed by two to three boost injections. And then the animal is followed by the veterinarian. And I I think the beauty of this particular vaccine is it can be delivered by general practitioners. 
Um, we don't necessarily have to rely um, on, you know, any specialists. I'm not saying specialists can't be involved, but a general practitioner can deliver the vaccine and can monitor vaccine responsiveness. In terms of side effects, um, these are vaccine products that have been delivered to probably 100,000 or so humans to date over the past 30, 40 years. And what we generally see at most is we may see a reaction at the injection site, which is what you want to see. You want to see that you're stimulating an immune response. But in terms of any of the side effects that we know can occur, and remember, when I talk about giving human immunotherapy reagents, I used to deliver in a dose 10 to the 11th T-cells. These are T-cells that if you look at a bag, it looks like almost oatmeal. It's a volume of about 300 mils of a very viscous product. We deliver cells in that number, or even in today in the most recent therapies, hard T-cell therapies, some of the checkpoint inhibitors. Patients can have side effects. There can be some issues. With our vaccine product, it's like vaccines that we saw in our human trial in our non-small cell lung cancer patients. Our patients would come in, we would vaccinate them, hold them for an hour, they'd go back to work or go back home to sleep or whatever. So we really don't expect or see any side effects, any, any issues with delivering the product. We ensure that the product is sterile. The laboratory does a series of sterility tests and it's, it's not released unless it is clean and it is free of endotoxins. Um, we do the exact same testing that we did on our, our human product. Uh, so we can ensure that when the animal is vaccinated, it is a safe product. And in all cases to date, we've been delivering an autologous product. This is not allogeneic. It's all based on the animal's tumor that we received in the lab. Um, while you can deliver what are called allogeneic products, our focus is an autologous response because we want to deliver back to the animal, back to the dog, their own tumor antigens um, that are admixed with an adjuvant, which will make their immune system recognize their tumor cells. And we have evidence that this is working. Uh, we've looked at a in follow-up. A number of our animals um, have responded. We've seen objective clinical responses. We've seen duration of life. We've seen some really good responses um, in the um, hundreds of animals that have been uh, immunized to date. So we, we feel very good about this. Um, and it, it is a reagent that can be made in a very timely fashion in the laboratory facilities um, at, at Medivet Biologic. Um, we have, we've trained the staff. Uh, the, the staff has a laboratory SOPs that they follow and we monitor the tumors that come in. We oversee what the laboratory gets and what they deliver. So there's a number of, of safeguards built into the system so that we know that our SOPs are being followed, so forth and so on. Um, hey, John? John, this is, yes, this is Larry Snyder. I, could, I, could I ask you to, to, to clarify a couple things for me? I yeah. think there might be a value. Um, you, you talk about in, induction of apoptosis. 
which to yeah. some practitioners may be a bit of a foreign concept can, considering apoptosis versus uh, necrosis or even yeah. necroptosis. Um, that's the first one. Kind of the difference why apoptosis is important in this in this treatment okay. rather than necrosing. The second, okay. could you could you compare uh, the hot topic right now in in medicine, of course, are the chimeric antigen receptor T cells, the CART T cells. Yeah. How is this product different or similar to the CART T cells? Those uh, a couple things that I might I I think might clarify to some of the listeners. Uh, the question was asked of, of why we induce apoptosis and why not simply looking at a necrotic cell product. Um, over the past 20 years or so, uh, vaccines are not novel reagents. People have been doing tumor vaccines for decades now. Um, and again, uh, our vaccine is based on human work. Uh, we basically, we started our trials as a dendritic cell trial but we eventually moved in the final series of patients where we did uh, essentially a very similar vaccine to what we're doing um, in, our, in our canine model. Um, so we want to make the tumor cells immunogenic. And when the immune system sees um, foreign antigen, it can see either necrotic cell products or it can see what's called apoptotic bodies. Um, it turns out there have been a number of studies done where people have compared necrotic lysate versus apoptotic bodies. And what the apoptotic bodies are, they're the result of normal cell lysis. For instance, I talked early on about how cytolytic T cells kill tumor cells. They induce apoptosis. And those apoptotic bodies are picked up by the immune system and further presented via dendritic cells to other T cell precursors. So we feel confident and we know from our human studies that we get good responses to apoptotic bodies. Now, is our preparation 100% apoptotic bodies? No, there's, there's obviously necrotic cell lysate in there as well. It's a mixed product, but what we are inducing are these apoptotic bodies, which we are assured and we have seen in laboratory analysis, we can generate an antibody response, we can generate a helper T cell response, and we can generate a cytolytic T cell response. So we feel good about the source of antigen, the type of antigen that we are using. Um, in terms of current immunotherapies and where this vaccine fits, um, immunotherapy, the first immunotherapy was approved by the FDA in 2010. That's a cancer vaccine. Uh, it's called Provenge. It was developed by a country, a company called Dendrion in Seattle, Washington. That vaccine was very similar to the vaccine that we use, we made in lung cancer at the University of Kentucky. It was dendritic cells that were processing and presenting prostate tumor antigens. So the, the vaccine was essentially identical. Um, and if you follow what the FDA has approved over the past six to seven years, Provenge was approved first. The next immunotherapies that were approved were 
molecules called antibodies called checkpoint inhibitors. What happens when you induce an immune response is the immune system at one point realizes that the virus or the bacteria have been cleared. And once the immune system gets that signal, the immune system doesn't want to overproduce effector cells. So what it does is it has this system, this checkpoint system. These molecules are expressed on the cell surface to turn off further T cell responses. Well, that's all well and good for bacteria and viral infections. The system works beautifully. That's how we are surviving as humans and all our vertebrate uh, relatives uh, in the world. However, in cancer, what happens is we develop an immune response against tumor cells. And what the tumor cells do is they induce the expression of these checkpoint inhibitors because tumor cells have what's called a drive to survive and they wanna turn off the immune response. So what's been done are people have developed antibodies against these checkpoint molecules, CTLA-4, PD-1, PDL one and then there's another family of molecules that are currently being developed. And so basically what is being done under these FDA-approved therapies now are people are being infused with these antibodies to maintain their T cell responses. And they work fairly well in melanoma, they work in lung cancer, and they're being developed in other histologies at the moment. The most recent immunotherapy that has been developed is a very complex therapy. They're called CAR T cells. And what CAR T cells are, are basically you take all the lymphocytes that are in peripheral circulation and you make them all reactive against a single antigen. So what you're doing is you're gene modifying all the T cells, which have all the abilities of making helper cytokines or the cytolytic processes. You're putting in a receptor and that receptor can now recognize the tumor cells. So you're making it a monoclonal T cell response. Now that's all fine in humans and in humans, a few years ago, it was so exciting, response rate looked to be 100%. Well, now as you go back in all cancer trials and you look at cancer patients, they tend, in some cases, to recur. So while we were thinking CAR T cells were gonna be the gold standard, I think now people are beginning to look at them a little, you know, a little more carefully. They do work well. But here's the point. If you want to deliver an immunotherapy to a general veterinary practitioner, CAR T cells are not practical. They're, it's, they're, number one, they're difficult to make. Number two, they're expensive. And number three, they can be difficult to deliver. You can have some really critical side effects. When we're developing an immunotherapy for a family dog, we want something that is simple, that is transportable, and is affordable. CAR T cells are not simple. They can be transportable, but affordable, 
that's a whole other issue. If you look at human CAR T cell therapies, you're talking about half a million dollars for a single treatment cycle. We're talking about treating our family dogs. So one has to be practical. And how do you be practical? You develop a vaccine, which is easy to deliver, which is transportable, and gives you an immune response in the animal with no side effects. That's what this particular autologous cancer vaccine does. Do I have any other questions? Yeah, yeah. So we have some uh, have some questions into the chat here as well. Um, so why do we inject intradermally along the spine? Uh, why not just into the afflicted site? Okay, uh, did I get your question right? Why do we inject <clears throat> intradermally versus into the tumor? Is that the question? Yeah, intradermally along the spine versus into the tumor site. Okay. Uh, number one, um, the, the most evolved site in the body is the skin in terms of developing an immune response. The skin has great dendritic cells, antigen-presenting cells, and when an antigen is delivered into the skin, it gets picked up by what are considered the best, the most efficient dendritic cells. It's then transported to draining lymph nodes, and there it's processed and presented to T cells, both B and T cells, which can then traffic to the site of the tumor. You can do intratumoral delivery. That's being done in humans in some trials. Some people have success, some do not. But many of the animals that we see, they don't have cutaneous tumors. They have visceral disease. And so it's not so easy to inject into the tumor site. The other issue is when you're dealing with cancer, you're dealing with a lot of immune suppression within the tumor microenvironment. So while some people are having some very interesting results in terms of intratumoral injections, we find that the best site for vaccination turns out to be intradermally into the skin uh, and obviously noting that some of the material gets into the sub-Q space, but it all ends up trafficking to draining lymph nodes. So, you know, we, it, the bottom line is the majority of animals that we get tumors from, the tumor's been removed. If it's a cutaneous lesion, there may not be another cutaneous lesion. And in terms of an intratumoral delivery in the lung or the liver, now you're getting complex in terms of potentially a general practitioner delivering the vaccine. It's much easier to deliver it intradermally. And we know it works in both humans. Um, in our human dendritic cell trial, everything was injected intradermally and it worked. What else? Uh, so this question says, why do tumors uh, tend to swell in the short term? Okay, so when we first started doing immunotherapy, um, we would look for, quote, tumor regression. Um, the tumor gets smaller. And in the late 1990s, we began to see that, well, when we first started doing immunotherapy, we began to see this phenomenon. If a, if a patient had multiple tumors, some tumors shrunk, some tumors got larger, some tumors didn't change. The tumors that shrunk 
conceivably could have been necrotic and had fewer tumor cells. The tumors that got bigger, interestingly, we were actually getting what we wanted. That is an inflammatory response. We were inducing an acute inflammatory response. So we were bringing in the T cells that we were activating, and we were also turning on naive T cells. So some tumor lesions getting larger, I'm not saying that um, it's always the best situation, but it is a scenario where many instances we see good tumor regression. We now are very happy if we see tumors get bigger first. That means we're getting acute inflammation. In tumor immunology, we have two types of inflammation. We have acute and we have chronic. Acute is good. Acute is bringing in new T cell precursors that can get stimulated to the antigen. Chronic inflammation tends to lead to further disease. So when we see a tumor get bigger, we ask the treating veterinarian and the owner to not get worried yet, because in many cases, the tumor will then, in some cases, regress because we've gotten a good immune response. So that's why those sorts of things happen. It's not something that we don't want to see anymore. Uh, acute inflammation in terms of tumor immunology is good. What's next? Okay, so following the priming dose, why do we do the subsequent injections 30 days apart? Okay, so um, when you prime an animal you or a person, you're assuming that you're delivering your antigen under optimal conditions with your adjuvant uh, for the first time. That's the first time the animal's seeing it and they're processing it and presenting it, and they're beginning to expand the T-cell precursors. Now, what you have to understand is you have billions and billions of different T-cell precursors. But interestingly, against single antigens, you may only have 10 to 100 different T-cells. So when you prime the animal, you're turning on those T-cells, and it takes time. Eukaryotic cells can take 24 to 48 hours to divide. So you simply have to do the math. You do the priming dose, and then what you want is once you prime the animal and you develop these effector T cells, if they see antigen again, their, their activation signals are less stringent. They will proliferate quicker. So you prime, and then you boost. Now, do you have to get 30 days apart? In our human trials, we did 30 days. In many, in all the, the uh, murine vaccine studies I've done, we've done 30 days. Um, you can move it up to two weeks. You can do things at about two weeks, but you clearly want to give the animal that priming, that time, so that the antigen can be processed, presented to T cells, and those T cells can expand. You're not dealing with prokaryotic cells here that divide every 18, 19 minutes. You're dealing with eukaryotic cells, which take time to divide. So you do a priming dose, 
you then allow the animal to generate out those precursors, then you come back with your boosts. And we recommend 30 days because that's what we've done in humans and in our early trials, and it works. It also allows for what we don't want to see, and this is important, you don't want to see a hyperstimulation. You don't want to come back with antigen too fast. Because if you come back with antigen too fast, you can turn off the immune response. So it's important to give a period of time. And these kinetic studies have been done in essentially every vertebrate I've ever seen. They're all published. You can follow the kinetics of the development of an immune response. And it takes some time between priming and effective boost. <clears throat> okay. I know we got uh, I know we got Dr. Welch in here with us this evening. Dr. Welch, did you have a question? Hey, sorry. Hi, Dr. Inelli. Chris Welch up in Lake Geneva. We've chatted on a few occasions. I just thought maybe uh, for the listeners here with uh, your experience and my limited experience, talk a little bit about what you found, what I've found so far um, to be fairly immunogenic tumors. And uh, in my brief experience, obviously melanoma has been very good and three or four cases uh, phenomenal on thyroid carcinomas. But what in general are you thinking is going to be the most immunogenic tumors? Yeah, um, in, in humans, the majority of work in terms of development of immunotherapy has been melanoma. Melanoma is clearly the most immunogenic tumor. And the reason for that is probably because it's a skin-derived tumor, and the skin is highly evolved to protect us from the environment. Once you get into visceral organs, into lungs, the GI tract, and so forth, um, you, in some cases, you don't get as good an immune response. Although it turns out, in humans now, we see a good immune response in the lungs. That's because the lung is simply involuted skin. Um, in terms of dogs, again, I, I mirror what you're saying. Melanoma is clearly very immunogenic tumor in dogs. Um, a good amount of literature on immunotherapy in terms of melanoma in dogs. Um, we're seeing or have seen immune response in hemangiosarcoma. Um, so in terms of those particular tumors uh, in the spleen, um, and we've seen response, we've seen uh, immune responses in lymphoma. Um, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of a tumor. We've not seen um, the ability to, to generate the T cells um, or get a response. But there are clearly, as you say, more immunogenic tumors than others. And that's basically because of their anatomic location and where you would expect to see foreign antigen and, and how our bodies are designed to fight them. So probably skin and lung are probably the best, but then, you know, you get into GI tract and so forth, uh, you can get responses there as well. Uh, Dr. Unelli, one last thing to add on to that. Um, I mean, I would challenge practitioners to consider osteosarcoma cases, which we've had some success with, and maybe you can, uh, you know, discuss on an osteosarcoma base after amputation on, 
and, and usually that's followed up with chemo, whether it be a carboplatin or a cisplatin or even single dose adriamycin. Um, at what stage would you recommend injecting um, the, the vaccine throughout that? You know, a couple weeks after um, amputation, before chemo, somewhere in between. And do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And actually, thanks for reminding me. Um, in, in humans, we really, I got to be honest, historically haven't dealt with much osteosarcoma. In dogs, it's clearly an issue. You're absolutely right. And it turns out that osteosarcoma is fairly immunogenic as well. Wow. Now, in terms of combining immunotherapy and chemotherapy, it's a very tricky issue in terms of um, in my human work, we would stage our, our vaccine with chemotherapy. What you have to be careful of is you, can't, you have to be very careful when you deliver the chemotherapy and what you are uh, potentially destroying immunologically. If you're giving a chemotherapy, for instance, a cisplatin, which may be eliminating myeloid precursors, you got to be careful because your antigen-presenting cells are coming from the myeloid compartment. So when you're designing how you want to treat your animal, you clearly have to give enough time between the prime of the vaccine and when you deliver your chemotherapy, either before or after. If you deliver chemotherapy after your vaccine, you can't give it in a day or two days because you're going to be destroying right. the precursor cells. So you really have to look at the drug and you have to look at when the drug is cleared from the body. And that's what we do in humans. We know based on the kinetics on all the pharmacology that's done, we can basically look at a pharmacology book and say, this drug is cleared at 18 to 20 days. It's cleared by the liver cleared by whatever the kidney, then we can deliver the immunotherapy. And that's where the treating veterinarian really has to be thinking about their combination therapy. You can't, it will do you no good to pile the immunotherapy with the chemotherapy at the same time because you're, de you're destroying the immune precursors. So you have to be careful. Um, in the literature, I have seen in many successful trials, people priming first with chemotherapy, trying to get tumor destruction, tumor availability, coming back with a vaccine, and in subsequent chemotherapy. I've seen other situations where people try to first induce immunity with a vaccine and then come back with subsequent chemotherapy. So it's really, I don't have a cocktail I would think it's, it's dependent upon the drug you deliver, and you have to be cognizant as to when, what the effects have on myeloid precursors or T-cell precursors, and you have to be cognizant of when the animal can process that drug and it's eliminated via whatever mechanism, liver, kidney, or whatever. So that's, a, that's an excellent question. But I, I think, and I'll end it on this and not to take up too much time, I think your, your goal with osteosarcoma is that we're always at a, a race against metastatic disease, as everybody knows. 
Um, so we, we think we know that for the most part, you deliver your chemo. And then if you can then follow it up um, with the cancer vaccine, especially if you can get three or four, that's probably where we're gonna see the most success, which makes sense. You've delivered your four doses of Adria or cisplatin or carboplatin, and then you're at that race a year to 18 months against metastatic disease. And we know that it's fairly immunogenic. So maybe start injecting at that three month stage, you know, post-op, but that's all I'll say. I'll, I won't take up any more time. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. The, the key is, and the point you bring up is really important. Immunotherapy works when there is not a lot of tumor. It works best. The best thing to right. do is to debulk your patient with surgery, come back with conventional therapy, as you just said, give chemotherapy, reduce tumor burden as best you can, make sure the drug is cleared, and that's in the literature, that's, that's in the oncology books, and then come back with a vaccine. You stimulate the immune system as a scavenger system, and that's, it works very well that way. That's a really good point. All okay, right. Can I answer that? Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so uh looks like we're we're out of time for uh for tonight's webinar. It sure goes by fast when we're having a great conversation like that. Thank you very much, Dr. Yanelli, for coming on. Very good presentation. Okay, no worries. Anytime, just contact me. Yes, sir. Okay. So thank Thank you, everybody that uh, that came on tonight and listened. Uh, definitely shoot us an email if we weren't able to get to your questions. That's info at medivetlabs.com or uh, call us at 859-885-7111. So uh, thanks again to Dr. Unelli, Dr. Snyder. Thank you, as always, for coming on. Uh, well, my, I, learned, and I learned a lot. Dylan, if I can add, you know you can reach me anytime. These people can reach me anytime. Yes, sir. No yes, worries. Sir. Uh, Dr. Unelli is definitely open and uh, willing to help with case selection. So, uh, yeah, reach out to us if anybody has any other questions. And uh, everybody, have a great rest of your night. See you next month. Have a good one, Dylan. Talk to you later. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.